Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and pray over tithes and offerings with that. And uh, if you want to give towards missions, just mark that on the envelope or on the check. And again, uh, we'll put that towards the the trip in general. So Lord, we thank you so much for your provision, for your presence this morning. And uh, we do pray uh, just your your provision over everyone that's even interested in going on this trip. uh, that you would you would do miracles, Lord, in preparing them to go, and that even today, this morning, you would begin to prepare the hearts of those who they're going to encounter in that place. Uh, we pray your blessings again over every gift, God, and every giver in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to dive right in. Uh, we are continuing our series on the Gospel of John. We're going through a chapter a week, uh, and... Uh, The first chapter we looked at, we looked at the links that John went to to connect his audience, his Jewish audience, to uh, Jesus, uh, to connect with them uh, through Moses and through the story of creation. Then we looked at chapter 2 the next week and the miracle of turning water into wine. Uh, John called it a sign. So we looked at what that sign was pointing to and how it was pointing towards the grace of God. Chapter 3 we went into last week, and we looked at uh, Jesus' encounter with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, uh, and how he defined with Nicodemus uh, the need and what it meant to be born again. And this week, uh, I told you if you could to read chapters 4 and 5, and if you did that, maybe for the first time in your life, you're an overachiever, because I looked at my notes wrong, and we're actually just in chapter 4. So, (laughs) congratulations. Uh, But the problem I ran into... Uh, in John chapter 4 uh, is not really a problem, but uh, the, the problem of sorts that I ran into is all of John chapter 4 is relevant towards the message that I have today, uh, and it's 54 verses long. And as someone with a short attention span, I want to consider those of you who might have a short attention span. So uh, what I want to do this morning is read a few verses to introduce the narrative in John chapter 4, and then we're going to play a video clip from uh, the Son of God series that depicts picks the events taking place, and then we're going to come back and uh, dive into Scripture more deeply. But I want to dive in first in John chapter 4, and I'll just read the first seven verses, and then we'll go to the video. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot, the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and that's where we're going to pick up in the video. A Samaritan woman came to draw some water. Give me a drink of water. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. So how can you ask me for a drink? Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. If you only knew what God gives, and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him. And he would give you a life-giving water. Sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get that life-giving water? It was our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well. He and his children and his flocks all drank from it. 
You don't claim to be greater than Jacob, do you? Those who drink this water will get thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring, which will provide them with life-giving water and give them eternal life. Sir, give me that water. Then I will never be thirsty again. Nor will I have to come here to draw water. Go and call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband. You are right when you say you don't have a husband. You've been married to five men and the man you live with now is not really your husband. You have told me the truth. I see you are a prophet, sir. My Samaritan ancestors worshipped God on this mountain. But you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship God. Believe me, woman. The time will come when people will not worship the Father either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not really know whom you worship. But we Jews know whom we worship because it is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time is coming. And is already here. When by the power of God's Spirit, people will worship the Father as he really is. Offering him the true worship that he wants. God is Spirit. And only by the power of his Spirit can people worship him as he really is. I know that the Messiah will come. And when he comes, he will tell us everything. I am he. I who am talking with you. At that moment, Jesus' disciples returned, and they were greatly surprised to find him talking with a woman. But none of them said to her, what do you want? Or asked him, why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the town. Come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? So they left the town and went to Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples were begging Jesus, Teacher, have something to eat. But he answered, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples started asking among themselves, Could somebody have brought him food? My food is to obey the will of the one who sent me, and to finish the work he gave me to do. You have a saying, Four more months and then the harvest. But I tell you, take a good look at the fields. The crops are now ripe and ready to be harvested. The one who reaps the harvest is being paid and gathers the crops for eternal life. All right. So if we were to continue this story, uh, what we find, Greg, if you want to bring the lights up, yeah. Um, uh, in the narrative of John chapter 4, the disciples would stay there and Jesus would stay there for two more days. Uh, and uh, many, many Samaritans came to believe in Jesus. From there, they continue into Galilee and they are interrupted when they get there by a royal official who says, hey, my son is dying. Is there anything you can do? And Jesus said, go, your son lives. And the Bible says the man believed and his son was healed at that very hour. Now, uh, I love this series that we're doing, just diving in chapter by chapter into the Gospel of John. But if I'm being honest, it's, it's still kind of difficult because there is so much in each chapter. Uh, there, there is so much going on, even uh, in, in what you might think is an insignificant small detail. Can I tell you, when you study 
the Bible in depth, you find that there is no such thing as a small insignificant detail in the Bible. Every detail in scripture is intentional. Every detail is significant. And I just want to show you an example of that. We find it in verse six of John four. It says this, Jacob's well was there and Jesus tired as he was from the journey, thus sat down by the well and it was about noon. The reason that I highlighted here on the screen that word thus is because if you looked in your Bible, depending on your translation, it might be there or it might not be there. Some Bible translations have it, other Bible translations don't have it. And the reason for that is not because there's debate over whether Jesus said it or, or over whether uh, John wrote it. The reason that that's in some Bibles and is not in others is because we actually don't have a very good English word that corresponds with the word in the Greek language that they're trying to use right there. Uh, the word that they're using in the Greek language is meant to, to put added emphasis on whatever is taking place right before that. So in this case, just that simple word thus is meant to put added emphasis on just how exhausted Jesus is from this, this journey. Jesus' exhaustion in this moment actually is not some meaningless side note. It's, it's kind of the perspective that we're supposed to view this story from is Jesus has just completed uh, a, a journey through the desert in the heat of the day around noon and he is tired and he is exhausted and he is thirsty. And when John wrote back in, in chapter one that the word became flesh, it's not just that God put on flesh, that God put on skin. It's the Bible says that, that God submitted himself through Christ to every part of the human condition. Uh, in other words, he embraced every limitation that we face. Jesus got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He ached. He faced temptation. And if he, if he traveled through the desert in the heat of the day, he was exhausted. Uh, there's an episode of the chosen, I think it's in, in season two, where Jesus has been out performing miracles all day and the disciples are just waiting for him to show up. And when he actually comes into town, uh, he is just ready to collapse because he is so tired. And it really just depicts this in such good detail. And I would recommend that to you. I wish I could tell you what episode, but um, when Jesus became flesh, when God became flesh, he embraced every part of humanity. Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says that. It says that Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So rather than use it to his advantage, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Uh, I'm going to tell you something uh, that might make you judge me a little bit, but uh, it'll just kind of take me off my pedestal in your eyes. So a few weeks ago, I was playing basketball uh, for a few hours with a group of guys. Now, uh, I am not as spry as I once was. Uh, and some of these young guys, uh, I get tired from watching them run around. I, I don't know how they do it uh, because I'll get tired midway through the first game and they play for about two and a half hours and a few weeks ago it was at the end of the night we'd been playing for two and a half hours and i am done i'm exhausted i've reached that point and uh, this is the part where you can judge me if you want uh, one of the kids there who's been running around all night says hey uh i think uh pastor joe's gonna bring us a devotion i said nobody told pastor joe about this <laughs> 
He said, uh, well, just do something real quick anyway. I said, I'm tired. I am exhausted and it's past my bedtime. I said, I'm going home. So I'm not there yet. But I imagine Jesus in this state of life, in this backdrop, he is exhausted. He is tired. He is done. And he's just sitting here at the well wanting a drink of water. But he recognizes this woman has a need that needs to be met. I wonder because he was fully submitted to, to the human uh, vulnerabilities and temptations that we face, did he have this battle that said, do I rest because I really need rest? Or do I meet this need because she really needs that need met? Now, whether or not he had that thought doesn't necessarily matter because Jesus could do something moment by moment that we struggle with. And that's, uh, the Bible calls it walking in the spirit, living by the spirit, being governed by the spirit of God. Uh, in Jesus's life, it was moment by moment. He was always led by and empowered by the Spirit of God. For us to be led by the Spirit of God, uh, when Paul talked about being filled with the Spirit of God, he was saying uh, continuously be filled with the Spirit of God. It is a moment by moment decision, uh, and we don't always follow the Spirit. Sometimes we follow the flesh, and that goes for your pastor as well. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But if we continue looking at just the different directions, kind of the subplots of John chapter 4, I want to show you a few directions that we could go. Uh, one of the fascinating things about John chapter 4 with a Samaritan woman is her placement in the story in the scripture uh, seems to be where we can purposely contrast her uh, with Jesus' encounter either immediately before her or immediately after her. So immediately before her, Jesus encounters a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now, if you compare the two, what we have is Nicodemus, who is of the religious elite of that day, finds Jesus, seeks him out in the middle of the night so that no one could see. But here in Samaria, we have uh, the religious outcast, and Jesus seeks her out in the middle of the day, and he does so at the water well, which is a gathering place, so he does it so that anyone could see. We find with Nicodemus, uh, he kind of disappears from the story for a while. He goes away empty-handed and doesn't return. This woman goes back to her whole town and brings everyone back with her to Jesus. Uh, it's this, this contrast of the religious elite versus the religious outcast. Uh, and it's not about your, your status. Jesus shows us that. It's about your heart. Uh, we could go uh, into the next encounter he has. Uh, we have this lowly Samaritan woman. And then his next encounter is with a royal official. So now instead of the religious elite, we have the social elite versus the social outcast. And what we find is Jesus meets the needs of both of them. And it's this idea that Jesus is not here for the poor or the rich. Jesus is not here for the Republican or the Democrat. Jesus is here to meet every need of every person at every end of the spectrum. When you go out these doors, you can look at the next person you see and know they need Jesus. You don't need to hear their story. They need Jesus. Um, Another thing that we could look at here is uh, with the Samaritans, the Bible specifies that they heard his words and they believed in Jesus. 
And with the royal official, Jesus says, go and your, your son will li live. And the Bible says the man took him at his word. He believed his words uh, and he, he went to his son. Uh, so we have this, this woman of Samaria. We have a royal official, likely of Rome. Both of them take him at his word. Sandwiched between this, Jesus speaks to the, the Jews in Galilee. And he says, unless you guys see a sign, you won't believe. So he's talking to the people who are supposed to believe and he's saying, you have to see me do miracles to believe. Meanwhile, I go to Samaria or I go to the Roman royal official and just because of my words, they believe. And that is the faith that God is seeking. Um, if we, we continue just looking at these subplots, uh, one of the things that Jesus described to this woman was, you should be asking me for water uh, because I offer a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. I offer living water. That's the two ways Jesus describes this water, as a spring and a well. And that's significant because God defined himself by this back in the, the book of Jeremiah. Uh, and verse 213 is just one example where God says, if you put it up, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. The exact same thing he said to this woman. He was basically saying, I can offer you what God said to Jeremiah, who he is. In other words, I am the fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah. Now, one more way that I wanted to go, but I'm not going this morning, is, is Jesus says to the disciples, I have food you know not of. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And he's, he's saying, my, my food is to finish the work of God. And again, what were the last words that Jesus cried out on the cross? He said, it is finished. That food, I, it is finished. I have completed the will of God for me on this earth. So uh, th there is so much going on here. But to me, as I read this chapter, all of those are subplots to, to the major story that's taking place here. And I think the major plot in John chapter four, we find it in verse 35. Jesus says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months, four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Uh, now, I mentioned this passage a few weeks ago when we were talking about our vision for, for this year as a church. A vision, uh, part of that is to reach the one, the, the one person that God has placed in your life that you can influence for Christ. That is what we are seeking this year is to reach uh, that one. And we talked about one of my favorite aspects of this message is in the uh, Gospel of Matthew on two separate occasions, Jesus stands before uh, crowds of more than 10,000 people. And in neither occasion does he look out at the masses and say, look, look at the fields, they're ripe for harvest. And that seems like the perfect situation to say that. But instead, we have this moment where it's just a single, overlooked, undeserving Samaritan woman. And Jesus says to the disciples, open your eyes, the fields are ripe for harvest. We have to change our perspective about what the harvest looks like. We have to change our, our point of view. We have to alter the way that we are looking at the harvest because whether you realize it or not, the fields are ripe for harvest. And maybe for you, that is one single person. But I love that aspect of this message, but it's far from the only thing that's taking place here. Uh, I believe another facet of this passage uh, can be traced back to something that John wrote uh, far earlier in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. Uh, it says, So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. 
and now he had to go through Samaria. Now, in the Jewish mindset, there was almost no such thing as having to go through Samaria. Uh, Samaria Samarians or Samaritans were hated, bitter rivals. Uh, they, they hated one another, and, and I'm not going to get into that. It would take too much time, but you can Google it. Uh, it's very well known that they just hated one another. Now, the, the, the most direct route for Jesus to go from Judea to Galilee would to be to pass through Samaria. But it was basically only if it was a, an urgent matter that they would take that route. And I'm hoping you can see it. I, I have the map. They've recreated the, the routes that they would take. Uh, you can see the white in the middle is, is the direct route. The most common route is the red over to the right, where they would actually cross over the Jordan River just to avoid going through Samaria. And then they would cross back over and go up to Capernaum or a third route as they would go uh, over by, by the sea. Um, they, they would actually add a couple days journey to their route to avoid Samaria, but they would usually do this, not always, but most often. Now, I want to talk about something uh, we talked about last week, because Jesus, uh, in chapter 3 of John and throughout his Gospels, he points them, uh, the people back to Ezekiel uh, chapter 34, uh, and we talked about that in detail last week, but in Ezekiel 34, uh, God, through the prophet, really chastises the religious leaders, and then he makes a proclamation that basically says, since you're not doing it, I'm going to come do it. Uh, I want to read a few of those, and this kind of skips around. Uh, in Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 2, it says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should, you, uh, should not shepherds take care of the flock? In verse 4, he says, You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. And make note of this, you have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. On to verse 6, he says, My sheep have wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. And verse 11, he says, For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day, uh, day of clouds and darkness. And then in verse 15, he says, I will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. In verse 16, he says, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. How did he begin this? He, he began by saying, the, the ones who are supposed to be searching for the lost and bringing back the strays are not doing it. So God says to the prophet, so I'm going to have to do it myself. And I want you to see this because a chapter earlier in John, in chapter 3, Jesus alludes to, to Ezekiel 34. And now we move to chapter 4 of John. And here we are talking about Samaria. Samaria is a land full of strays, a land full of lost sheep. And it's also a land where the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders refuse to go. So Jesus had to go. Do you see that? They would not go there. So it begins in chapter 4 by saying, well, Jesus had to go. And he said in Ezekiel 34, he was going to have to go. He was going to have to go to the places that no one else would go. He was going to have to go to the people that no one else would go to. Why? Because that is the harvest. The people that no one else will go to. 
the places where no one else will go. And one of the things that plagues the church today is we only want to reach the people who come to church. Or we only want to reach the people who approach us and ask us to reach them. But, but sometimes the harvest is not the people that we want to go to. Sometimes the harvest is the people that we really don't want to go to. Sometimes the harvest is the people that no one wants to go to. You know, something I found fascinating this week is, is I always thought that the, the Jewish people wouldn't go to Samaria uh, because of their pride because they were just too proud and they hated what the Samaritans stood for. But as I was studying this week, there was a Jewish historian named Josephus. He wrote a 20-volume 20, 20 historical book called The Antiquities of the Jews, and it's dated back to the first century, about 60 years after Jesus' death. And we have a lot of his writings, and one of the things, this is obviously not in the Bible, but it's in secular history. He talks about an instance in secular history where a group of Galilean Jews traveled through Samaria and there was a violent confrontation where they were beaten basically for traveling through Samaria. And what that tells us uh, is that the reason that they would not travel through Samaria wasn't just because of pride. There was actually a safety issue with traveling through Samaria. Uh, there was also a fear thing uh, with, with traveling through Samaria. It could actually be dangerous to travel through Samaria. And what that does is it kind of adds a whole new side to what Jesus is saying when he says, hey, I've got to go there. That is the harvest. And there might be fear in going there. And I just wonder, maybe God is calling some of us to go after certain people and there is fear. Maybe it's not physical fear, but, but, but you're afraid of rejection. You're afraid of what that person will think. You're afraid of what people will see uh, and all of these things. It's not about where you want to go. And it's not about where you are comfortable going. It's about going where, where you are needed and where God is sending you. And that's what we find in the story of the harvest is, is Jesus is saying, you might be afraid to go there, but I have to go. I have to go to this place and to this people. Uh, and finally, there's one more aspect of this story that I want to read uh, really quickly. If we read John 4.35 again, it says, don't, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now, uh, in, in the Greek language, this, this saying, uh, it's still four months to harvest, uh, it's actually very rhythmic the way that it rolls off the tongue. It wouldn't roll off my tongue, so I'm not even going to try it. But uh, in the Greek language, there is a rhythm to it. And because of that, uh, scholars and historians and, and all these people, they look at it and they say, this was most likely either a proverb or just a very popular saying. And Jesus even says as much. He says, you have a saying here that uh, the harvest is still four months out. Now, the, the meaning of this saying is there's no rush here. We've got all the time in the world. The harvest is still four months away. You can come, Renee. The harvest is still four months away. Uh, and what Jesus says to them is, open your eyes. Don't live by this, this idea, this proverb that says you've got all the time in the world. What he's saying is, Today is the day of salvation. 
And maybe for you uh, to share the gospel, you're waiting on the day where all the stars align and you feel qualified and you haven't sinned in a week and you say today's the day or that day will be the day when I share the gospel. And what Jesus says is, is we cannot live by this proverb that says I've got all the time in the world. Jesus says the harvest is today, the harvest is now, the harvest is before you. And I don't mean to be blunt, I kind of do, but I'm going to say I don't mean to be blunt, but why do you think you're here? And I don't mean in this church, but why do you think you're on the earth in this day, in 2023 in America? It's not by accident, church. It's because you have been placed when you are, where you are, for such a time as this. And as long as we live by by the idea that I've got all the time in the world, We will live in a lost and dying world that's going to hell. We will never see revival if we live by the idea that says, oh, I've got all the time in the world. Somebody else will take care of it. But if we say today is the day of the harvest and that person that I I encounter in the workplace is part of the harvest and God has called me to begin harvesting this day for his kingdom, church, revival will begin to happen. Jesus said, open your eyes. He's saying to his own disciples who have been following him all this time now, he's saying, open your eyes. You're missing it. It's right in front of your eyes. And you know, you could walk with Christ your entire life and you could miss it. And the Holy Spirit can just be knocking on your door saying, open your eyes. Open your eyes. That person is not there by accident, encountering you by accident. You don't work with them by accident. You don't go to school with them by accident. They are part of the harvest, and I have called you, called you to be my harvester. Church, can you stand with me this morning? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, he said, Today is the day of salvation. look at that very selfishly and say I had that day of salvation praise God or we can recognize with every person we encounter that today is their day of salvation and God has called me to play a role in that can you close your eyes with me church this morning that our eyes would be opened that the things that you've called us to and the people you've called us to that we've been blind to for so long that we, we even, even right now would begin to see God that there is a reason that we are here I just want you to to invite the Spirit of God to search your heart and say, God, who is that one? Maybe you know who that one is, and it's just a matter of boldness in your life, saying, God, give me the boldness to speak, to represent you well. So as Renee leads us, church, just take a few minutes.
urgency, God, to, to share your love, to share your gospel. I pray that that fire doesn't fade as the wheat chapter 5 next week if you didn't read it. Just one chapter, I'll be honest with you this week. (laughs) I'm so glad you could make it. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.